This program is brought to you by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. Hello, welcome to the program today. This is Don Boyd with the Blue Springs Church of Christ. I want to welcome you to Opening the Scriptures. Today we're going to continue in our studies on how to study the Bible. We're looking again at a brief overview of the New Testament books at this time. We've gotten to the book of 1 John. 1 John was written to the church in general. The Apostle John is the writer, and it was written somewhere between the years of 85 and 90 A.D. The key features of the book There is an emphasis on knowing the will of God. There is a warning about false teachers. There is emphasis on fellowship with God and with one another. And then the testing, uh, proving, or trying of the doctrines that are being taught to make sure that they come from God. Brotherly love is also a key emphasis there in the book of 1 John. And then there is the fact that we can know that we have eternal life. 1 John 5, 13. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. First John was written for members of the church. We can know that we have fellowship with God, fellowship with one another, if we're faithful to God, of course, and have eternal life. The book of Second John was probably written to a faithful Christian woman. The Apostle John is the writer, and he calls himself the Elder, and again, it was written about the years 85 to 90 A.D. The key features of this book, rejoicing in having faithful children and having no fellowship with those who do not abide in the doctrine of Christ, 2 John 9 through 11. 2 John 9 through 11, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God speed. For he that biddeth him God speed is partaker of his evil deeds. It makes me think about whenever maybe someone comes knocking on your door from maybe the Mormon religion, the Jehovah Witness religion, or whatever the religion may be. And whenever they leave, they say, God bless you. And if you say, God bless you back or bless you or whatever like that, then you're partaking in their evil deeds because you're giving them God's speed. Second John was written to present Christ as the truth, to encourage us to remain faithful to Christ's doctrine and avoid false teachers. Third John was written to a man named Gaius. 
the apostle John again is the writer and he calls himself the elder. Third John verse 1 says, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. And again, it was written about the same time as the others, 85 to 90 A.D. The key features of this book. There is emphasis on two distinct kinds of church members. There are the warm-hearted, and there are the arrogant and proud. Third John was written to address some trouble that had arisen in the church where Gaius was a member, and that trouble was caused by a man by the name of Diotrephes. John also commends a man named Demetrius. So there are three different individuals talked about here in the book of 3 John. <clears throat> the book of Jude was written to Christians in general. The author is Jude who is the Lord's brother. He calls himself a servant of Christ in Jude verse 1. Says Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Christ Jesus and called. The book of Jude was written somewhere between the years of A.D. 70 and 80. The key features of the book Contend earnestly for the faith. Beware of false teachers and their empty promises. Remain faithful in the face of persecution and save others any way you can. Jude was written us to never compromise the truth and to be faithful to God in all things. Examples of God's judgment against sin are given to show us that God will judge the wicked and God will bless the faithful. The book of Revelation was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. But as you look at these seven churches in Asia Minor, you see the Lord's church throughout the centuries. Different congregations are seen in these seven churches. The author is the Apostle John, 1 John 1, 4. Excuse me, Revelation 1, 4, not 1 John, Revelation 1, 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace be unto you, and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And again, it wasn't that long ago we did a, or a series of lessons on the book of Revelation. The book was written between 85 and 95 A.D. The key features of the book, it is written in symbolic language, Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants, things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Signified it was right, written in sign language. Other key features of the book. The victory of the faithful. The glory of God the Father and the Christ. 
the beauty of heaven, the horror of hell, and the judgment day. Revelation was written to give every Christian the knowledge that we can be victorious in the face of severe persecution, and that is through Jesus Christ if we remain faithful. One of the main things to remember about the book of Revelation is that we need to look through or look at the book of Revelation through first century eyes, not 21st century eyes. Now let's move on to another topic on studying the Bible, and that is why. Why do we study the Bible? Just reading the Bible will not get us to the understanding of the Word of God that we need. You know, we can read about the cycles of nature, but we're not going to understand them unless we study them with an open mind. You can read about calculus, but you'll never understand it unless you study it. The same is true of God's Word. You know, Paul told Timothy that Timothy had known the Scriptures from his youth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, 16, or verse 15, 2 Timothy 3.15 He says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. But Paul commanded Timothy to continue to study God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15 And you can look up the word there. The American Standard Version translates it, Give diligence. The King James translates it, Study. But study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling aright the word of truth. We cannot know something, again, as we looked at any subject that you want to see, that you want to talk about. You don't know it by just reading it. You have to study it. <clears throat> we need to set our heart to know God's will. Ezra chapter 7, look at verse 10. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. And we need to understand God's word. Nehemiah 8, 1 to 8. Nehemiah 8, 1 to 8. As there it said in 2 Timothy 2.15, to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We've got to understand the, what, what is God's word trying to say to us. Nehemiah 8, 1 to 8. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street, that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. 
And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, <clears throat> and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. Now you'll notice all that could hear with understanding. When do children start understanding? When they're infants. That's when we start training them. Verse 3. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. <clears throat> You'll notice all the people, those that could understand, were attentive. They weren't there playing and drawing and things like that. They were paying attention. Verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for that purpose. Beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and on his left hand, Padiah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra, verse 5, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now I want to stop right there for a minute as well. Whenever Ezra opened the word of God, the people had great respect for the word of God and stood up. How great a respect do we have for the Word of God today? But let's continue reading there in verse 6 of Nehemiah 8. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, and Jamin, Akub, Shabithai, Hodijah, Maasiah, Kaliah, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. They weren't wandering around, going to the bathroom, and things like that going to get a drink of water, they stood and listened to the word of God while these men, you'll notice it says, they caused the people to understand. In other words, they explained the law. Verse 9, oh, excuse me, verse 8. So they read in the book of the law distinctly, and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. That is what we need to do with the Word of God. Understand what God is saying to us. That's why we study the Word of God. To know what God's Word is trying to tell us. Now the question arises, how? How do we study the Word of God? 
All too often in our study of God's Word, we come away with a basket full of fragments, but no understanding of what all we read. In the, Bible, in the work Biblical Preaching by Haddon W. Robinson on page 32, he gives this example, and I quote, Calvin Coolidge returned home from services one Sunday and, asked, and was asked by his wife what the minister talked about. Coolidge replied, Sin. When his wife pressed him as to what the preacher said about sin, Coolidge responded, I think he was against it, unquote. And you see, that gives us an example of what people do with the Word of God. They read it. They come away with this basket full of fragments, and they don't understand it. Think about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch there in Acts chapter 8. The eunuch was reading from the book of Isaiah, and Philip came to him and said, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, How can I accept some man should guide me? He was reading it, but he didn't understand what it was all about. And that's what we want to try to do to help us determine whenever we study the Word of God, what is God trying to tell me through His Word? When we read a passage, we need to ask this question. What is the big idea in this passage? Now, there may be several different things there, but first of all, what is God's big idea here? What's he trying to say? What's the idea? <clears throat> the, word, the word idea comes from the Greek word eido which means to see and therefore to know. An idea enables us to see what was previously unclear. In other words, whenever we look into something, we study something, we see what it's about, and then we can say, I see what you mean. I see what you're trying to say. The big idea is what the writer is talking about, and what he is saying about what he's talking about. So he's talking about something, and he's telling us about what he's talking about. I want to look at a few examples from Scripture. <clears throat> Go to Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 117, verses 1 and 2. Of course, there's only two verses there, so it makes it simple. It says, Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. <clears throat> For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Now, as we look at those two verses, what's the subject or the big idea. What is the writer talking about? All right. We look at it. We see praise mentioned several times there. But the big idea is not praise. You see, he's not telling us everything about praise. 
It's also not the praise of God, because that's too broad of a subject to be covered here in these two verses. The subject is, the big idea of Psalm 117 is why everyone should praise the Lord. Now, what is the psalmist saying about what he's talking about? In other words, why should everyone praise the Lord? Well, the Lord should be praised because of his merciful kindness that is so great toward us. And the Lord should be praised because his truth is eternal. So that's just very simple there. Everyone should praise the Lord because of his merciful kindness toward us and that his truth is eternal. That's what the psalmist is trying to tell us. That's what God through the psalmist is trying to get us to understand. Now I want to look at a little longer passage, and this is in the book of Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, <clears throat> verses 19 through 25. It says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, <clears throat> having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, Let us hold fast the profession of faith, or of our faith, without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. All right, now as we look at this passage, what is the subject or the big idea that the writer is talking about? You know, this is an instance where we kind of need to divide the branches from the tree. Okay, the big idea is not the priesthood of Christ. He does not tell us everything about the priesthood of Jesus here in this paragraph. The subject is not our boldness to enter the holy place. This is a branch, but it's not the tree. The subject is not to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. This is also of a branch of the tree. Now, when I talk about the tree, the tree's the main subject. The branches are the sub-subjects, I guess you might say. So, what is the big idea? What is the tree? What is God trying to tell us? He's telling us what should happen since we can enter into God's presence with confidence because of our great high priest. That's what he's trying to get across to us. Now, all these other branches then are things that will happen when we have this great faith and confidence in Jesus Christ. 
these other things are what will happen. The branches are the results of us being able to enter into God's presence with confidence because of Jesus, our great high priest. These are the branches. Verse 22, we draw near to God with assurance that comes from a heart purified in baptism. Verse 23, we will hold fast to that profession or confession we made when we became a Christian, and we'll do it without wavering. The next branch is verse 24. We stimulate or provoke one another to love and good works. And then the fourth branch, verse 25, part of stimulating one another to love and good works is not forsaking the assembling of the saints. We're not going to do that. So those are the branches. The main subject, again, is that we're able to enter into God's presence with confidence because of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Now, those are just a couple of examples. But then you can see from that, understanding God's word is going to take some effort. It's going to take some thinking. Now, how do we start? Where, you know, how do we start? Step one, choose the passage you're going to study. As an old rabbit dish recipe starts, first, catch the rabbit. You know, there's no need in going through everything until you catch the rabbit. So decide where you're going to start. You can use a daily Bible reading chart. But if you do that, don't, don't just read. Study. Well, let's start at the beginning. Let's start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You know, we can say in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. All right. Step two, study the passage and take notes. What's, what's the big idea there in Genesis 1, 1? It's creation. It's creation. What is the writer saying about creation? He is saying God created the heaven and the earth in the beginning. That would be the beginning of time. God created it. Now, make sure and put the passage in its proper context. This one's simple. It's creation. Now, examine the details of the passage. The first question, in the beginning of what? We've already mentioned that. Just in the beginning of time, in the beginning of the creation there. And then it says, God. Who is God? We need to ask that question and answer it. Created. What does created mean? It created the heaven and the earth. What does the heaven refer to? And what does the earth mean? refer to. In order to study, we need tools. Use your tools to help you understand what is being said. The tools that I'm talking about are such things as lexicons, concordances, word study books, Bible dictionaries, commentaries, etc. Always be careful, though, because these are works of men and not works of God. 
you can look at the details using the tools. Now, I use eSword on my computer. There are several other, you know, excellent uh, Bible programs out there that you can use. eSword is a free one. All right, so let's go back and let's answer. What are, what are we looking at here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? Well, first of all, we will notice, we'll answer the question, in the beginning of what? What are we looking at? Well, we're looking at in the beginning of time. We go to Genesis chapter 1. And the sword has a little deal called King James Plus, which just means it's the King James Version with Strong's numbers placed beside the words that are used there. And again, there's others that have that as well. But in the beginning, or if you look up the word there, it is the Hebrew word Rashith. Strong says it is the first in place, time, order, or rank specifically a first fruit. Now again, you go looking through some of the commentaries, and I'll tell you what some of them said. Kylan Delich is a free commentary you can get on eSword. It says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Heaven and earth have not existed from all eternity, but had a beginning nor did they arise by emanation from an absolute substance, but were created by God. This sentence, which stands at the head of the records of Revelation, is not a mere heading, nor a summary of the history of the creation, but a declaration of the primeval act of God, by which the universe was called into being." Unquote. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, again a free one on Esword, he says this about the beginning, in the beginning, and I quote, The head part, beginning of a thing, in point of time, in the beginning is always used in reference to time. Here only is it taken absolutely. All right, so here we have what in the beginning refers to. Now let's answer the second question. Who is God? Who is God? Again, going back to, again, using eSword. Whenever you look at eSword there, and it the word God there is translated from the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is the plural of Eloah. Eloah means a deity or the deity. So here we have the first implication or inference that we have that God consists of more than one being. God is more than one individual in the Godhead because it, Elohim is the plural of Eloah. So again, we understand there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But right here in Genesis 1.1, it gives us 
the information that there is more than just one being in God. It says the plural of, again, aloha. God's in the ordinary sense, this is Strong's definition, but specifically used, especially with the article of the supreme God, occasionally applied by way of deference to magistrates. Again, you look at the context. We know this is not magistrates, but this is talking about the supreme God. So now we have a little more insight into God. And as a matter of fact, the word Elohim is used through the first several chapters here in Genesis. It's later on that we have God being mentioned as a by a different name. And you can go in and look that up and determine that for yourself because we need to understand these things. Now, thirdly, created. What does created mean? Well, whenever you look in Strong's, it means to create, to cut, select, or feed is the Hebrew word bara. Again, you go back to the context. And the context means to create. Barnes, Albert Barnes, again in his commentary, states this of the Hebrew word bara. And I quote, create, give something, or excuse me, create, give being to something new. It always has God for its subject. Its object may be anything. Matter, Genesis 1.1. Animal life, Genesis 1.21. Or spiritual life, Genesis 1.27. Unquote. Those are just a few examples. Now, we see that God created the heaven. All right, what does the heaven refer to? Whenever you look in Strong's, it says it is the Hebrew word shamayim, and it'll give you the pronunciation for it there. You don't have to try to figure out the Hebrew. It's got it written in English letters and in a pronunciation given for it below that. But Strong says it's the second form being dual of an unused singular. And again, some of this stuff we I'm not even going to try to understand. But this root meaning is to be lofty, the sky, as aloft, the dual perhaps alluding to the visible arch in which the clouds move, as well as the higher ether where the celestial bodies revolve. In other words, where the birds fly and where the stars are. Now, there's also a brown driver Briggs of the Old Testament, and it gives definitions for these words as well. And again, it's free in Esword. And brown driver Briggs gives the Hebrew word shamayim this definition. Heaven, heavens, sky. The visible heavens are sky. 
the abode of the stars as the visible universe, the sky, atmosphere, etc. It also means heaven as the abode of God. Again, we look at the context, and the heaven that we're looking at here would be the heavens, again, where the birds fly, and then the heavens where the stars are. It is kind of a simple explanation of that. Now I want to look at several other, oh, wait a minute, I guess we need to look at what the earth is first, don't we? What does earth refer to? Whenever we click on that uh, Strong's numbers there next to earth, Brown Driver Briggs gives us the definition, and it is the Hebrew word Eretz, and it means land, earth. We look in Strong's, and again, it gives us this definition, to be firm, the earth at, lar or at large or, per or a land, a land. All right, so now we have the definitions of the things that were going on there in Genesis 1.1. You know, whenever we just read over it, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We kind of pass over that and go on, but we learn so much from just studying that. And a matter of fact, you look at it, and we have time, force, energy, space, and matter, all in this one verse. In the beginning, time, God, force, created energy, heaven, space, earth, matter. It's all found in that one verse. Now I want to look at other passages that refer to the creation. Let's go to Psalm 33, 6 through 9. And see what you're doing here then. You've got the local context about what's going on. Now we're going to see some other things that the Bible has to say about the creation. And you can use a concordance, or you can use reference material, whatever. But again, Psalm 33, <laughs> verses 6 through 9. It says there, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Now, I want to stop there for a minute. You know, we didn't go down and read through uh, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But as we go through those verses, it will say, God said, let there be light. God said this. Well, right here in Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. See, now we're looking at the power of God in the creation. Verse 7, He gathered the waters of the sea together as in heap, he layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. I mean, you look at the idea given here. The idea is that humanity should stand in awe of God. Excuse me, because again, that's the tree. We look at the branches by God's word. These things were created. 
God gathered the seas in a heap. They're in their storehouse. God spake, and everything came into existence. That is why we should be in awe of God. So there's more about the creation there. Look in Isaiah 44, 24. Isaiah 44, 24. Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. Again, we see the great power of God and that we are to adore him and fear him and praise him because of what he did. All those things are not mentioned there, but he is our redeemer. He formed us in the womb. He made all things. He stretched the heavens. He set forth the earth all by himself. In Mark chapter 13, look at verse 19. Mark chapter 13, verse 19. For in those days shall be affliction such as was not from the beginning of the creation which God created, unto this time neither shall be. So it's talking about something else here about great tribulation. But the creation of God, since the beginning of the creation, nothing like that had happened before or will happen again. In John 1, 1 through 3, we see more about the creation. In the beginning was the Word. Now we'll stop right there for a minute. We know what in the beginning is talking about. What's the Word? Who's the Word? Verse 14 tells us, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we know who the Word is. The Word is Jesus Christ, that we know as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Before he was known as the Son of God, he was known as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right there we see that word Elohim. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created a heaven and the earth. So now from John 1, 1, we know God the Father and God the Word. And again, we know from verse 14, that word is the Son. So God the Father and God the Son. And we know from Acts 5 that the Holy Spirit also is God. So now we have a little more coming into it. Verse 2, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. So now we know that this second person of the Godhead, the Word, Jesus Christ, is the one that created all. He did the creating. Without him was not anything made that was made. I want to go back and read the first part of verse 3. All things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So we look at that, and we look at verse 14, and now we see we have God the Father and God the Son. 
and Jesus is the one, the one we know is Jesus, is the one that did the creating. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, you know, we look at that sundry and diverse, what does that mean? Well, it's just different times and different ways. You can go and use your tools to determine what the words mean. You don't have to know Greek. You don't have to know Hebrew. Like I say, you can get these uh, programs, Bible programs, eSword. Uh, you can get a Vines Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament words. You can go in and look it up. What does sundry mean? What does diverse mean or diverse mean? But anyway, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Notice, whom he appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds. So again, right there tells us that Christ is the one that made the worlds. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express or very image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty of on high. You'll notice right there, everything in the creation is held together by the word of his power. And whenever he comes back, everything is going to be destroyed. He created it all. He will destroy it all. Now let's look at another. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen are not made of things which do appear. That tells us right there that before God created the heavens and the earth, there was nothing. You know, God existed eternally, uh, God created the angels. They are created beings as well. But before the creation, you know, there was no little dot the size of a period at the end of a sentence that exploded called the Big Bang and caused everything to come into being. No, there was nothing. God created from nothing this universe. And it was framed by the word of God, by God's word. Now, so we look at other passages that refer to the creation, the same subject we're looking at. We look at the local context, and then we look at the expanded context that is found in the rest of the Bible. Now, let's take a third step here. Relate the parts of the passage to each other. Put them together. God, will, God already was there in the beginning of time. In Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. 
Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> It says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God is the creating force behind the creation of the heaven and the earth. And again, we have in that one verse, time, force, energy, space, and matter, that being Genesis 1.1. Now step four, ask these questions and answer them. What does all this mean? Number one, it means that God's an all-powerful being. Number two, it means that we are here because God created us. Number three, it means that what God says is all important. And number four, it means that every dollar spent to determine the origin of the universe is wasted. But now there's something else we need to ask. What does it mean? Is it true? Is it true? You see, this leads us to other studies. And you can prove both biblically and scientifically that Genesis 1-1 is true. Now, how can we prove that? We're going to look at it just a little bit uh, next week. We're running out of time today. But what we want to do, we'll finish, we'll finish this step four. Now, in order to give you a little bit of information of what's taking place, step four is what does it mean, is it true, and what difference does it make? And we'll look at that. And then step five, what's the purpose of it? Why did God put it in the Bible? And then we're going to go through an example of how to study the Bible there from 2 Peter chapter 3. So, Lord willing, we'll start there next time with, is it true? We'll start right there, and then we will go through an example. Again, this is Don Boyd with the Blue Springs Church of Christ. I want to thank you for being with us today. <clears throat> and if you're ever in the Blue Springs, Missouri area, we want to invite you to come and worship with us. I know I mention this every week, but you're invited every week. We're located at 1000 Southwest Clark Road in Blue Springs, Missouri. We meet on Sunday morning at Bible class, for Bible class at 9.30 and then 10.30 in the morning for worship and 6 o'clock in the evening for worship. We meet Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock for Bible classes and a short devotional period. You can also see our lessons at oabs.org and click on the uh, different congregations tab there and find Blue Springs. You can find archive lessons. We also live stream there. And you can find archive lessons and live streaming on YouTube. Just go to Blue Springs Church of Christ at the times of our services and we're live streaming then. So thank you for being with us today and we hope to be with you next week.
Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bob Wave Media by visiting us at bobwavemedia.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We encourage you to leave us a rating on iTunes and on the Podbean app. We also would like to encourage you to visit the Online Academy of Biblical Studies, that's oabs.org, and consider enrolling in one of their classes in the fall or spring semesters. As always, we thank you for listening.